we are at a point in the book of Mark where Jesus is needing to, if you'll excuse the word, reprogram his disciples. He has now had them in his care for about three years. It's been about three years since the time of Jesus first entering his ministry. And he's had loyal followers. But now something is different. He is on his way to Jerusalem to die. He had spent most of his three years of ministry in Galilee, as we've learned, in the northern part of Israel. Well, Jerusalem's in the southern part of Israel. So now leaving his hometown, his home area, his his main base of operation in Capernaum. He goes down into the south of Israel to Judea. And now he's going to be coming toward Jerusalem. And he's giving his, if you will, graduate level, his master class to his disciples about what it means to be his follower. And really the entire 10th chapter of Mark is Jesus reprogramming his disciples. It begins with Jesus reprogramming them on what they think marriage is all about. They live in a world in which divorce was very permissive. It was accepted. In some circumstances, divorce would have been commanded to a faithful Jew. And Jesus has to reprogram them on what God's view of marriage from the beginning was. The permanence of marriage. The the underlying command of marriage. God says what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Let not man separate the one flesh union that God has put together. In fact, we learn from the book of Matthew, they were so startled by this teaching. They said, well, it's good that it's just better that no one get married. If that's really what God's view of marriage is, then no one should get married. Well, that's not what Jesus meant. But he had to teach them. We saw after that in verse 13 where Jesus is to reprogram them about their view of children. They look at children as an inconvenience, an irritation, a hindrance. And as these parents are bringing their little infants to Jesus and the disciples are shooing them away, he rebukes them. He says, no, don't you understand that those children are over there, that of such is the kingdom of God, and that unless you receive the kingdom of God, like that little infant over there, unless you experience that kind of humble dependence on me, you can't even get into the kingdom. They needed to be completely reprogrammed. Then we saw, after that, we saw the story of the rich young ruler. A rich young man comes to Jesus, exercises humility and kneeling before him, runs to him and says, what do I need to do to get eternal life? And you can just imagine these these fishermen, common men around Jesus. Wow, Jesus, here's what we've been waiting for. Finally, one of the important people, one of the elite people of our society. Suddenly, now this guy's coming to us. Jesus, bring him in. Reel him in, Jesus. What does Jesus say? I'll tell you what you can do. Go give away everything that you have to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. And off he walks away sorrowful. And then Jesus teaches them 
about what it is to enter the kingdom of God. He said, how hard is it for them that have riches to enter into the kingdom of God? And they were so startled by that, they said, who then can be saved? If the rich people who in their eyes were blessed by God, you were rich, that meant God was blessing you. He was pleased with you. If they can't get into the kingdom of God, people who God is blessing, then how can any of us get in? Jesus had to reprogram them entirely on what it meant to be in his kingdom. And now, there's another step that needs to be reprogrammed. And this step is what it means to be great. What it means to be great. Now, I wonder if you and I need to be reprogrammed a little bit this morning on what it means to be great. And, and to test that, I want to ask you a question. If you, in just the privacy of your own mind here, were to think of someone that you would view as great, it doesn't even need to be someone who's a great Christian, though that would, I would invite you to think of that as well. But what does it mean to be great? What does it mean to be a great politician, a great athlete, a great musician, a great chef? I don't care what it is. What does it mean to be great? And I would just ask you, you don't, you don't need to state it. You don't need to speak it. What does it mean to be great? What does it mean to be a great Christian? If I were to ask you, who is a great Christian that comes to your mind in the world today? Who would come to mind? Who would be some, that person is a great Christian, or that person was a great Christian. Do you and I need to be reprogrammed? You know the world cares an awful lot about being great? I, I sometimes like to do this just to, to test it. I went to Amazon, and I searched their book catalog, and I just typed in the word greatness. Greatness. How many hits do you think I got for greatness on Amazon Books Online. I don't actually even know because it just said more than 10,000. More than 10,000 books on greatness. Does that surprise anybody? In fact, I then went to filter and I said, let me just see in the self-help category. In other words, how do you become great? I'm going to help you become great. And, and in that, there were almost 5,000 books in Amazon's online catalog of how to be great. Do you want to know how to be great in the world's eyes? Let me read you some of these titles. The Greatness Mindset, Unlock the Power of Your Mind and Live Your Best Life Today. You might want to check that one. No, I'm just kidding. Decoding Greatness, How the Best in the World Reverse Engineer Success. Here's another one. The School of Greatness. Another, Activate Your Greatness. There's this, this kind of thing. There's one side of, I, I found of the world that says, you're not great yet, but here's how to become great. And there's another side that says, you are great, you just need to unlock it. You just need to, you just need to activate it. Here's another great title. Own your greatness. Overcome imposter syndrome, beat self-doubt, and succeed in life. Another one promised. The path to greatness, transforming your life through self-improvement. And then another one, the four pillars of greatness to happiness, health, wealth, and purpose. Friends, our world is obsessed with becoming great, with greatness. And Jesus' disciples needed to get reprogrammed on what that was. And I wonder this morning, like I said, whether you and I need our own reprogramming as Jesus' disciples in what it means to be 
truly great. The title of the message this morning is simply this, true greatness. True greatness. Jesus is going to tell us what it means to be great in his kingdom. And what we're going to find is that it has nothing to do with how the world views greatness. In fact, it is entirely the opposite of how the world sees true greatness. We're going to look at three aspects of this, as we customarily do. We're going to look, first of all, at what I'm going to call a paradox of greatness. A paradox of greatness. Will you look with me in your Bibles at Mark chapter 10 and verse 32? And we're going to just go through this text, these 14 verses together, because they're really just going to lead to the conclusion that we're looking for today. What is true Greatness, And if you'll notice in verse 32, Mark records, and they were in the way going up to Jerusalem. So as I've said, they are now in the south of Judea going up to Jerusalem. Now why do they say going up to Jerusalem? Because you can only go up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is, is several thousand feet, I think 2,500 feet or so above sea level and over 3,000 feet above the Dead Sea, which is below, well below sea level. So if you're going to Jerusalem, you're going up, as any one of you who has been to Israel can attest. So they were going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus went before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Now, what on earth is he talking about here? There's a picture, I think, that will be helpful in your mind. Tabitha sometimes has to remind me, I tend to walk very fast, very quickly. And sometimes I forget I have children that are, do not walk quickly. And so we'll be somewhere, and I'm getting somewhere, and I'll be like 10 feet ahead, and I'm just like getting somewhere, and, and the two-year-old legs don't work like my six-foot-three legs, right? And so I need to, okay, I need to step back. I need to slow down. Well, I've got a picture of Jesus like me 10 feet out ahead. Notice what he says. And Jesus went before them. Now, the picture actually is a really good one. Just like I was out ahead trying to lead my family to, we're going here. Jesus was out in front and his eyes, his face was determined. He was absolutely fixed. Now, why does it say that his disciples were amazed? Well, I think it means because they had a sense of what was happening to him at Jerusalem. They had an idea of what was coming when he went to Jerusalem. This was a place of great danger. In fact, when we read in the book of John, we re you may remember it, Jesus telling his disciples, we're going up to Jerusalem, and what did Thomas say? We're going to go and do what? Die with you. They had an idea that this was the mission that was not going to end well. I think they were amazed because Jesus' face was utterly fixed. He, he wasn't afraid. It wasn't like he was waffling. He said, guys, let's go. We're going there. And they said, whoa, he's serious. It tells you something about the character of Jesus. And as they followed, they were afraid. Now, I think this actually is referring not to his immediate 12 disciples, but to the broader crowd. His disciples were amazed at Jesus' purpose, his determination. I'm going there. And those that were kind of following behind the 12, 
they were nervous. They were scared. They had an idea as well of the danger. And now notice what it says. And he took again the twelve and began to tell them what things should happen unto him. Now we've seen this before. In chapter 8, he told his disciples, I'm going up to Jerusalem to die. This is what's going to happen to me. In chapter 9, in verse 31, same thing. He tells them again, we're going to Jerusalem. This is what's going to happen. And now he's reiterating it yet again. He takes the twelve and begins to tell them. Now notice verse 33. Notice what he said. Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests. Now stop there for just a minute. We've heard that phrase before in this book. Jesus, when he talks about going up to Jerusalem in chapter 8 and in chapter 9, refers to himself as the Son of Man. And I'm just going to remind us what that means. Jesus frequently referred to himself as the Son of Man. In the Old Testament, the Son of Man was used in one of the most important prophecies of the Messiah to refer to Jesus. Listen to uh, Daniel chapter 7. Daniel has this vision of this Messiah who's going to come and be the ruler of God's people. And he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days is God comes to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him, and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom. What has Mark been about? The kingdom of God. Ruled by whom? The Son of Man. And that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. So Jesus is using an Old Testament name, the Son of Man, as a picture of the Messiah who would have this everlasting kingdom and everyone would bow before Him. Jesus is saying, the Son of Man is Me. That's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? To go back to this ancient prophecy that the Jews were, were awaiting and call yourself the Son of Man. In other words, He's identifying as being the ruler of God's kingdom. He is the great one. He is the one who's been prophesied for thousands of years. He is the one who all the Jews are waiting for to set up God's kingdom on earth. He's the Son of Man. Well, that, what, that is what makes what comes next so shocking. What's going to happen to the Son of Man? The Son of Man shall be delivered... Just look at the verbs. He shall be delivered under the chief priests and under the scribes. What does that refer to? Well, in part, it refers to him being betrayed by Judas. He was delivered by Judas to the chief priests. He was betrayed. And they shall condemn him to death. He'll be condemned. And they shall deliver him to the Gentiles. Who's that? Pontius Pilate, the Romans. And they shall mock him and shall scourge him. That means to be whipped with a, with a whip. It means to be tortured in this way. And shall spit upon him so he'll be utterly humiliated and embarrassed publicly. 
and shall kill him, and he will be killed. Now, do you think anyone saw it coming? Any of the Jews of that day would have said, oh yeah, the Messiah, I know what's going to happen to him. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be condemned. He's going to be delivered to the Gentiles, the, our hated enemies. He's, they're going to mock him. They're going to whip him. And they're going to spit on him. And then they're going to kill him. Would anyone have said, yep, that's our idea of our great king who is coming to deliver us from the Romans. No. Jesus is saying, how's... God's great king going to be treated when he comes to earth. He's going to be mocked and humiliated and slaughtered. Now, let that sink in for just a moment on what greatness is. That's the paradox of greatness. You say, what's a paradox? A paradox is two things that you have a hard time seeing how they can be true at the same time. It's like saying, as, as it's been quoted before, oh, that restaurant, no one goes there anymore. It's too crowded. Think about it for a minute. No one goes there anymore. It's too crowded. And yet you know exactly what, what they're saying. No, some people are still going there, but, but it's so crowded that other people stay home. You get the idea. It's a paradox. And yet when you think about a paradox, often it's true. Like, we're in March. How come we're still getting blizzards every week? I mean, that would be another paradox, right? For, oh, no, that's not actually a paradox. That's just Minnesota. That's just what we've embraced, folks. I don't know what else to tell you about that. But notice, the great one, Jesus, the king, the prophesied one, is going to be utterly, utterly humiliated, rejected, and killed. But notice what else he says. Verse 34, in the third day, he shall rise again. This isn't the end of the story for God's great one. And that leads us right into verse number 35. Will you look at verse 35? And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come unto him saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. So first of all, we see the paradox of greatness that God's great one would be rejected and killed. And then secondly, we see the pursuit of greatness. We see James and John, who elsewhere in the Bible are called the sons of thunder. These sons of thunder are two of Jesus' three closest disciples. You remember James and John and Peter went up and saw the transfiguration when they saw Jesus' glory just unveiled from the inside out. He was glowing like a spotlight. He was glowing radiant with the glory of God. So they'd already seen his glory. And now they take this opportunity, probably hearing Jesus says, yeah, all this stuff's going to happen to me, but then I'm going to rise again. And they say, okay, now's our chance. Now you need to know something else from Matthew chapter 20. This is the other account um, from the book of Matthew. Do you know actually who came to Jesus with these two brothers and asked for this privilege? Mom. Their mom came with them. That's kind of funny, right? I'm not going to make any joke about moms, but hey, Jesus, my boys, they're pretty good, Jesus. Hey, Jesus, will you, will you take care of them? Now notice what they ask. We would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. Have, did your kids ever do this to you? Hey, Daddy, can, 
can I have something? What, sweetie? Daddy, whatever, just whatever I want. Don't say no. Promise you won't say no? Promise you won't say no, Dad? you got to make sure you get the commitment before you tell Dad what you actually want, right? Otherwise, he might say no. you got to get the promise. And so they're coming to Jesus and saying, just give us whatever we want, please. And look at how patiently Jesus deals with them. What would ye that I should do for you? What do you want? Now listen to what they say. Grant unto us that we may sit one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand in thy glory. Now I want to stop for a moment and recognize with these guys. This showed faith. Because Jesus had just told him he was going to be rejected and killed. And they're still coming to him and saying, but we still think you're going to be in glory. Well, they had seen his transfiguration. They had seen his glory with their own eyes. They believed it. They were loyal to him. They weren't running away. So there's something praiseworthy about what they're doing, even as we recognize what a completely absurd request. I mean, talk about not reading the room, right? Have you ever had someone who you've been pouring out or sharing your heart with them? You've been, you've been saying, I, I, I feel so burdened in this. And their immediate response is just to, to respond with something so flippant and absurd. You say, Are you, were you even listening to me? Husbands, I know that's never been the case with you. I know you've never missed this real state of your wife's emotions in that moment. I know this is not there. You're not needing to listen to this, but I do. Um, so I'll raise my hand there. But what are James and John saying? You're going to be in glory. And Jesus, I feel like we'd be, your, we'd be good as your chief lieutenants. We're loyal. We're faithful. We're good boys. Look, even our mom says it. Can we be your chief lieutenants? Here, Jesus, you're the, king. you're the king. We're not trying to be the king. We'll just be on either side of you as your assistants. What an amazing thing. Now notice what Jesus says to them. You know not what you asked. You don't know what you're asking, really, do you? You don't really get it, do you? Notice why. He says, can ye drink of the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? You say, what on earth is he talking about? The cup and the baptism. Here's what he's asking them. In the Old Testament, the cup, the cup that would be drunk is a picture of God's judgment, of God's anger. There's a picture in the Old Testament of like God taking the dregs of the grapes the grapes that could be used to make grape juice, that could be used to make wine, God taking the dregs, the fermented leftovers, and saying to the people of the nations, drink it, this is my judgment. It would be like if you ever drank a cup of something rotten and you were forced to drink it all the way to the bottom. That's the picture of the cup. What was Jesus saying? The same thing when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he said, God, if this cup will pass for me, please, but not my will, but yours be done. Jesus knew there was a cup of God's judgment to drink. It was God's judgment against your sin and my sin. And Jesus was going to drink that cup to the very bottom most. He had a cup to drink of, and it was a very painful one. It was a cup of judgment. 
It was a cup of suffering. It was a cup of pain. And now he looks at his disciples and it says, you want to be great like me? You want to be on my left hand and right hand in my glory? Can you drink of the cup of my suffering? And how did they respond? Sure, Jesus, we can. They had no idea. They were loyal, but they had no idea. He said, can you be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? Now, he's not talking about Christian baptism that, like we're going to do on God willing on Easter Sunday morning. Not that baptism. What does it mean to be baptized? If any of you have been in our baptism class, you know to be baptized means to be dunked, to be immersed. What's he saying? He says, I'm going to be immersed. I'm going to be dunked, thoroughly drenched in what? Suffering. My suffering is going to be like me being drowned in, like me being immersed in. He says, can you suffer like that? Will you be immersed in my suffering? And they say, yeah, Jesus, we will be. Now listen to what Jesus says. They said unto him, verse 39, we can. And Jesus said to them, ye shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of. And with the baptism that I am baptized with all, shall ye be baptized What's he saying? Do you know what happened to James, the brother of John? The first martyr in the Christian church. Acts chapter 12, James was the first one. Um, uh, uh, no, I'm sorry, not the first actual person to be martyred, but he was the first, I believe, apostle to be martyred. James was the one who was killed by the sword, by Herod. He did drink of the cup of Jesus' suffering. He was baptized with Jesus' suffering. What about John? John wasn't martyred, but John died as a prisoner on the island of Patmos. That's where he wrote the book of Revelation. John partook of the cup of Jesus' suffering. He was baptized with the baptism of suffering. Jesus said, you will be. They didn't know it fully yet. You will be. But then notice what he tells them. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. In other words, he's saying this. Guys, this isn't something that we're sorting out here. This is something that is prepared, and someone will have this position, but it's not mine to give right now. I'm leaving that up to my father. He'll decide. And in that sense, Jesus is going to give those positions of, of, if you will, prestige or those positions on his left hand and right hand to those for whom it is prepared. Do you know, I think we have some idea for whom that will be. When they wanted that position of greatness, what did Jesus ask them? Are you willing to suffer for me? I think, I can't say conclusively or dogmatically, but I think the people who will be closest to Jesus around the throne will be those who have suffered the most faithfully for his sake. Probably, frankly, that rules us out, friends. Let's be honest. You and I suffer virtually nothing for Jesus, like those who have come before us, those who have been burned alive, those who have been immersed in boiling oil, those who have gone to the lions, those who in every age who have been killed, like there are people who are our brothers and sisters around the world who are being killed today. Friends, they are drinking of the cup of Jesus' suffering and being baptized in that suffering in a way that you and I can hardly fathom. And our hearts and our prayers and our love should go out to them. We ourselves should be seeing ourselves as participating in their suffering in the very smallest of ways. Notice what Jesus says to them. 
you're pursuing greatness. You're pursuing being elevated, being prestigious, being on my left hand and my right hand, and you don't know what it involves. You don't know that it involves suffering, drinking the cup. You don't know that it involves immersion in suffering for my sake. Do you know? He says, you will know. You will experience it. Friends, the paradox of greatness is connected to these disciples' pursuit of greatness. They thought the way of becoming great was elevating themselves in position and prestige. And Jesus is saying, if you want to be like me, if you want to participate in my greatness, it looks like drinking a cup of suffering and it looks like being immersed completely in pain and loss and difficulty. Those are hard words. They're hard words for us. And that's why, third, we need to look at the principle of greatness. Notice what Jesus says now as the other disciples catch word. Will you look with me in verse 41? And when the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. Now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking about these other ten disciples, Peter included, and you're saying, these spiritual-minded guys... They're looking at him, and how, how could you be so proud, James and John? How could you be so ambitious? How could you be so selfish? Jesus just told us he was going to die, and now you're out for your own benefit. Shame on you guys. We're, we're so displeased with you. Do you think that's how it was going down? How many think that Peter was upset because James and John had just gotten a head start on him? You beat me to it. Do you know why I think for sure it was that? Because we know only several days later, only a short period of time later, when they're in the upper room together for the Last Supper, do you know the discussion they were having? Probably their favorite one, the Bible records. They were arguing about who should be the greatest. Days before the death of Jesus, again, again, who's going to be the greatest? Why were they mad? I'm certain. I'm certain they were mad because they wanted to be on the left hand and on the right hand. Come on, it's not fair, Dad. And Jesus knows there's some reprogramming that's needed. There's a lesson that's needed to be had. Will you notice with me what this lesson is? But Jesus called them to him. He's going to talk to all of them about what true greatness is now. And saith unto them, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you, for whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister, and whosoever you of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. Three phrases here are going to help us understand these, all of these verses. Here's the first phrase. You know. Verse 42, you know. Friend, what do you and I know about greatness in the world's eyes? You and I know a couple things about greatness. Notice what he says. You know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles, the politicians, the kings, the leaders, those that rule in the world of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. They literally lord it over them. What does greatness involve in the world's eyes? It involves position. Greatness involves your position. 
the higher you can climb the ladder of position, the greater you are. Have you ever seen someone walking around with their business card and they pass it out to you? What do they want to make sure you see? What's their title? On LinkedIn, you looked up uh, someone's name on there and what's prominent right under their name. This is their title. This is the position they hold. Position is connected with greatness. Those who rule over the Gentiles, Jesus says. What do they do? They lord it over them. They lord it over the people that they're around. What is in addition to position? Privilege. What does it mean to be great? It means to have privileges. It means to be able to do what you want when you want to do it. It means prestige. It means you being viewed as high. In other words, not just that you are elevated, but that people see you as elevated. Jesus called this out among the Pharisees of his day. Scripture tells us that when he saw those Pharisees going to the feasts, he saw they always went to see, they always wanted to be seated at the front. They always wanted the chief most tables. I heard one pastor say, you know, when you go to a wedding, don't start at table number one and figure out where you are assigned. Just start at the end. Start at the last table and work your way up. That'll be a lot better for your own sanity. And this is exactly it. What does greatness look like? To their eyes, to the world's eyes, position and prestige and privilege. And notice what else he says. And their great ones exercise authority upon them. Power. Power. That's the eyes of the world. You can see it in our business world. Who are the great ones in our business world? Who are the ones who receive the most money? The ones who have the highest position. The ones who get to command the most people. The ones who are most respected in the eyes of of the business community and the people who have the most authority. How many people do you have under you? How many people are you managing? How much revenue are you bringing in to the company? That's what greatness is. Now I want you to see what Jesus says. Verse 43, but so shall it not be among you. It's not going to be like that among you. That's the second phrase, not among you. You know this is how the world does it. Not among you. Not among you. Let me just pause here by way of footnote and say this. A church is not a business. And a church should never be run like a business. It's not. I am not a CEO. And I plead with you not to think of me or treat me like a CEO. Because I am not. I am a servant. My only greatness in this church is by virtue of my service and not my position and not anything else. I am not a CEO and I should not be treated as one. And I don't care where you are, whether you're an elder in this place, whether you're a deacon in this place, whether you're a Sunday school teacher, whether you have some position in the church in, in title or not, that is not the position of greatness. It is not the source of greatness. And I say that because how many of our churches today are being run like businesses? The pastor, what's his job? CEO paid like a CEO. He's respected like a CEO. He's, he has authority like a CEO, almost unchecked. Jesus said, it's not like that among you. 
It shall not be like that among you. Don't let it be that way. When I asked you earlier today, what does it mean? What's a great Christian to you? How many of us thought to someone who had a great position? To someone who had great privilege? To someone who had great power? To someone who had great gifts? Friends, your greatness in, in the church is not how good a sermon you can give. It's not about how gifted you are in music or anything else. It's not about how many people you're managing underneath you. It's not about that. Jesus says, not among you. Your greatness, in other words, has nothing to do with your position. It has nothing to do with your privilege or your prestige. It has nothing to do with the amount of power you exercise. That is not greatness. So what is greatness? Will you notice with me? But whosoever will be great among you, that is, desires to be great, whoever aspires to be great, whoever has ambition to be great, shall be your minister. Now, what is your minister? The word here, literally, as one commentator, one, one preacher tells us, has the idea of a waiter, a server, like at a restaurant. If you're great, you're going to be the server. Now, what is Jesus trying to tell us in that? To be your servant. What does a server do at a restaurant? A server says, you have needs. And what's my job? To meet your needs. The server says, your cup of water is getting a little bit low. Would you like another one? Your server says, I'm watching out for your food to make sure it comes out when it's hot. Your server says, would you like some dessert tonight? Your server says, I can take care of that bill for you. I'll make sure to go process it right now quickly. Your server says, is there anything else that you'd like this evening? That's what it is. Jesus says, you want to be great? Be a server. That's what it means to be great. Now notice, a server has no particular position, no particular power, no particular prestige, no particular privilege. A server is simply devoted at meeting the needs of someone else. And Jesus says, that's what greatness is. Does anyone want to be great? That's great. He goes on beyond that. Will you notice? And whosoever of you will be the chiefest, literally the number one, whoever will be at the top of the heap shall be servant of all. Now that word servant there is literally slave. Bond servant, someone who is sold into slavery. In other words, someone who doesn't have a choice in the matter. Someone who is there by obligation, not voluntary. Jesus is that person at the bottommost rung of society, that person at the, at the lowest step of the ladder, that's greatness in my kingdom. Can we just say it like this? In Jesus' eyes, greatness is not how high you climb up the ladder. Greatness is how willing you are to go to the very bottommost rung of the ladder. Greatness is not about scratching your way up to get a better position, a title. Greatness is about going to the very bottom of the heap and just looking around at whose needs you can meet. Greatness is not about exercising your privileges. Greatness is about accepting and embracing your responsibilities to meet the needs of others. And what that means is this. You can be great. Let that sink in for just a minute. You may never have a position at a church. 
and yet be the greatest one in this entire congregation, in God's eyes, the greatest one. You may look around and you say, I have no privileges. You should have seen how I, how, how I grew up. You should have seen the, you should see right now the amount of money in my bank account. I feel like I, where's my talents? Where are my gifts? Where do I fit in? I don't know what I can do. Jesus says, you can be the greatest one. Be the server. Be the bond slave of everyone else. Now, when we embrace that idea of greatness, how much does it really challenge every single one of us to recognize, I can serve people. You can serve people. You don't need great gifts or great talents or great resources to be a servant. What does being a servant mean? It means looking around at someone who has needs and saying, can I meet that? I want you to think about the last time someone met one of, of your needs, just practically, in small ways. Someone was willing to listen where you shared some of your challenges that are going on. Someone texted you. Someone called you. Someone ministered you by encouraging you. Do you know what that person was doing? They were serving you. And it's not hard in that way to be a servant. If we will embrace simply the priority of Jesus to say, in the people around me, in my spouse, in my children, in my family, in my church, in my job, in my neighborhood. Who has needs? God, can I meet those? Do you want me to meet those? Okay, God, I'll serve. God says, that's the great one. That's where true greatness lies. It's not in position. It's not in privilege. It's not in prestige. It's not in power. It's those who are simply willing, like Jesus, to go down to the bottom of the ladder and meet the needs of the people around them. Now, this is where we ultimately need to close. There's one last phrase. Look at verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Here's the last phrase, for even. You know, not among you, for even. Do you get what Jesus is saying there? It would, it would be like this. It would be like if I were trying to teach my nine-year-old to be a hard worker and to really practice basketball. I would say, even Michael Jordan needed to work really hard. Do you get what I would be saying to him? I would be saying even the most gifted ones had to work really hard. So how hard do you think you need to work? You get it? For even, if even he needs to do this, then how much more me? Do you see that's what Jesus is saying here? Even the son of man, remember that phrase? Who's the son of man? The great one, God's prophesied one, God's king, God's Messiah. If God's Messiah, if his path to greatness was coming down to serve people, how much more yours and mine? If his path to greatness was service and suffering, how much more my path? Jesus came to show us what true greatness was. The king who emptied himself to be like nothing. God who, if you will, left the form of God to take on the form of man and be a servant. This was the path of greatness for Jesus the Messiah. Because Philippians 2 says that because he emptied himself and he became obedient to death, he humbled himself, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, for this reason, God has highly exalted him. Why?
because he showed us the path to true greatness. He is highly exalted. One day every knee will bow before him. One day every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord when the one who showed us what service was will be finally and fully exalted for all to see. The Son of Man came to serve. I want to pause and close now with just two thoughts. Here's one. The first thought is that Jesus came to serve you, friend. Jesus came to be your server. And do you know even today Jesus is serving you? Have you thought about that? Jesus is still serving you today. He's praying for you at the right hand of the Father. He's your defense advocate, as 1 John 2, 1 says, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's your defense lawyer before God today. And do you know what he's also doing to serve you? He's empowering you today to live the way you want. he wants you to live by his indwelling Holy Spirit within you. He's serving you. Let's worship Jesus, that he came as the king to serve his own subjects. But there's this as well. Will you follow his example? Will you pursue greatness? Do you notice that he never criticized the disciples for pursuing greatness? He never said, no, you should never try to be great in my kingdom. He, didn't. he never said that at all. He said, here's the path to it. It's the path to service. You don't need a position here at Straight Gate Church. You don't need any particular privilege or prestige or power to be great in God's kingdom. Would each one of us pursue that in our own way?